0: Good morning. Welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, my name is Roger Pilon. I'm the director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies, which is your host today. This is our eighth annual Constitution Day conference, and it's going to be a day full of uh, interesting talks, concluding with the B. Kenneth Simon lecture by Judge Michael McConnell at 5 o'clock, following which there. are will be a sumptuous reception, and we hope you stay with us. The whole day we'll be joined by others who come for parts of the day. Uh, This marks the 222nd anniversary of the Constitution Convention's unanimous 1787 resolution that the preceding Constitution be laid before the United States in Congress assembled and that it is the opinion of this convention that it should afterwards be submitted to a convention of delegates chosen in each state by the people thereof under the recommendation of its legislature for their assent and ratification. And as we know, the Constitution went out and eventually was ratified and took effect in 1789. We're hearing a good deal more about the Constitution in recent weeks uh, from certain demonstrators around the country, And it is a mark, I submit, of the increasing importance that the American public is placing on this document in light of fears that they have about what may be going on with the government today. And that's all to the good, because ultimately, it is the people who must preserve the Constitution. The courts can do it to an extent, but only to an extent. Ultimately, it must be alive in the hearts and minds of the American people. So this Recrudescence of constitutional interest is all to the good. Today, uh, we have, as I said, a full program, and I'm going to turn it over right now to my colleague, Ilya Shapiro, to introduce the program to you, and then to begin our first panel. Let me introduce Ilya to you. He is a Senior Fellow in Constitutional Studies here at the Cato Institute, and is the Editor-in-Chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review, a copy of which you all picked up. And for those of you who are seeing us on the webcast, you can order a copy now to the review at uh, the uh, cost of $15. And outside, other uh, earlier editions of the review are available at the uh, cost of $5 each. Um, Ilya uh, is not only the editor of the Cato Supreme Court Review, he's a senior fellow and is the person who is in charge of Cato's amicus briefs which we have been issuing increasingly over the past two years since uh, Ilya arrived. Um, He is a graduate of Princeton, of the London School of Economics, and of the University of Chicago Law School. He clerked on the Fifth Circuit for Judge uh, E. Grady Jolly. Um, He has contributed to numerous uh, publications, uh, including the Los Angeles Times, the Legal Times, the Weekly Standard, Roll Call, National Review, and so forth. He has appeared on numerous radio and television uh, programs. Um, Before joining Cato, he was Special Assistant Advisor to the Multinational Force Iraq on the Rule of Law. He has practiced law with Patton and Boggs, and before that with Cleary, Gottlieb. So he has a rich experience, and he will be uh, outlining for you the program today. So please welcome Ilya Shapiro. Uh,
1: As Roger said... Uh, this is our eighth Constitution Day conference and the eighth volume of the Cato Supreme Court review, the second one under my editorship. This is the nation's first in-depth review of the Supreme Court term just ended, and we hold the conference every year on September 17th, Constitution Day. Uh, about two and a half months after the previous term ends and two weeks before the next one begins, though, of course, this year we had the rare carried-over reargument in Citizens United, the campaign finance case, last week. We're proud of the speed with which we we publish this volume. Uh, Authors of our articles, uh, such as the two sitting here, the three on our panel, have uh, uh, about a month to turn in their articles after the end of the term. Uh, And we're proud of its accessibility, at least insofar as the court's opinions allow us to be accessible to uh, educated laymen, not just uh, lawyers and interested uh, citizens. Um, You have the program in your packet. Uh, our first panel is going to be on civil rights and federalism uh, with uh, perhaps in a, in a year that lacked real blockbusters. I think that the three biggest cases are on this panel. Uh, then we will have lunch. Then we will have a First Amendment panel uh, focusing on religion, speech, campaign finance. Uh, the likes of Nadine Strossen, Jim Bopp, and Brad Smith will be there. So stick around after lunch. Then a panel on the criminal law, Fourth and Sixth Amendments. And then uh, a slight break, and then a panel looking ahead to next term. Uh, after that, uh, moving right along, we'll go into the uh, B. Kenneth Simon Lecture. And this year, uh, which, uh, the lecturer is uh, the Honorable Michael McConnell, most recently of the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, now at Stanford Law School. Now, we run a tight ship, necessarily, uh, that we're going to be sticking to the times when lunch ends, when break ends. We're going to start, so uh, you know, please ab- observe those. Be in your seats. Um, thanks very much. Uh, besides, uh, Roger and I get all the, uh, the, the FaceTime here in front of you, but of course, uh, so many people go into both the conference uh, and working on the review. Uh, David Lampo and the publications and design staff. Linda Herzog, Victoria Cartwright, Rachel Goldman, and the conference staff, the interns who are flitting about and kind of making sure the, 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 uh, the bearings of all this are greased, and, of course, uh, Jonathan Blanks, our indefatigable uh, research and administrative assistant, without whom uh, none of this would be possible. I reiterate our hope that this conference and the collection of essays that you have in your hands will deepen and promote the first principles of our Constitution, giving renewed voice to the framers' fervent vi- wish that we have a government of laws and not men. In so doing, we hope also to do justice to a rich legal tradition, now largely eclipsed by the modern regulatory state, in which judges, politicians, and ordinary citizens understand that the Constitution reflects and protects the natural rights of life, liberty, and property, and serves as a bulwark against the abuse of state power. In this uncertain time of government bailout, stimulus, public options, and general overreach. It is all the more important that we remember our humble roots in the Enlightenment tradition. With that, I uh, welcome you and hope you enjoy this eighth Constitution Day conference. We begin this conference, as we begin the new review, with two provocative views on the big civil rights cases of the year. Roger Clegg, tackles uh, Bartlett v. Strickland and Namudno v. Holder, which challenge sections uh, 2 and 5 of the Voting Rights Act. Roger is president and general counsel of the Center for Equal Opportunity, which is a research and educational organization specializing in civil rights, immigration, and bilingual education issues. He's also a contributing editor to the National Review Online, writes frequently for other popular periodicals and law journals. From 1982 to 1993, Roger held a number of positions at the Department of Justice, including assistant to the Solicitor General, where he argued three cases before the Supreme Court, and the number two official in the Civil Rights Division and the Environment Division. From 1993 to 1997, he was Vice President and General Counsel of the National Legal Center for the Public Interest, where he wrote and edited publications on legal issues of interest to business. Next, we have Ken Marcus on Ricci v. Stefano, the infamous New Haven firefighters case that figured so prominently in Justice Sotomayor's confirmation hearings. Ricci exposed the tension between the disparate impact provisions of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act and the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, uh, which Justice Scalia pointed out in his concurrence and which Professor Marcus will discuss. Ken holds the Lillian Nathan Ackerman Chair in Equality and Justice in America at the Baruch College School of Public Affairs City University of New York, and is director of the Initiative on Anti-Semitism and Anti-Israelism in American Educational Systems at the Institute for Jewish and Community Research in San Francisco. Before joining Baruch, he served as staff director at the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. Earlier, Ken was delegated the authority of Assistant Secretary of Education for Civil Rights, serves as a commissioner on the U.S. Commission on Brown versus Board, and was General Deputy Assistant Secretary of Housing and Urban Development for Fair Housing and Equal Opportunity. Rounding out this august group is Cato's own Roger Pollan, who dives into the biggest business case of the year, Wyeth versus Levine. Roger is our Vice President for Legal Affairs, uh, holds our B. Kenneth Simon Chair in Constitutional Studies, and is the founder and director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies, as well as the publisher of the Supreme Court Review. He is also an adjunct professor of government at Georgetown through the Fund for American Studies, Uh, Before Cato, Roger had five senior posts in the Reagan administration, including at the Departments of State and Justice. In 1989, the Bicentennial Commission presented him with the Benjamin Franklin Award for Excellence in Writing on the U.S. Constitution. And I'm told that uh, Ken Marcus has agreed to be called Roger for the proceedings of this panel so we can make it simple for uh, for all involved. Uh, Roger Clegg.
2: Thank you very much, Ilya, for that, uh, that introduction. And I want to thank you also for the great work that you've done in editing the um, Supreme Court review this year. I want to thank Cato for uh, inviting me to, to this panel and also for, uh, for publishing this review and, and doing just such a splendid job. And, uh, and finally, I uh, would want, want to say how... Um, uh, pleased I am to be on a, a panel with uh, with Ken Marcus. Um, pleased to be on a panel with Roger Pallon also. But Ken Marcus and I have have worked a lot in the same on the same issues uh, over the last few years with respect to uh, to civil rights, and I have enormous respect uh, and admiration for the for the work that Ken has done. Let me give a, a quick overview to um, what I'm going to uh, to try to cover. Uh, in, in my prepared remarks today, um, I'm going to talk about the two Voting Rights Act cases that the Supreme Court handed down, uh, Bartlett versus Strickland and uh, Namudno v. Uh, Holder. But um, the common denominator of those two cases uh, and uh, what links them to the uh, uh, Ritchie decision, which, which Ken is going to talk about, is the uh, disparate impact approach to civil rights law, and so after I I t- talk uh, about those two Voting Rights Act cases, I'm then going to launch into a uh, uh, a rant uh, about why the disparate impact approach to civil rights law enforcement is a really bad idea, uh, and leads to all kinds of of, of problems and is uh, uh, unconstitutional to boot. So um, with, with that, let me uh, first give a, just a very quick uh, definition of what the disparate impact approach uh, is uh, as opposed to the disparate treatment uh, approach. The, uh, if you ask the, the man uh, on, on the street to define uh, racial discrimination, he would give you a definition like disparate treatment. Uh, that is treating people differently uh, because of their skin color. Uh, you deny them a job, or you deny them the right to vote, or you know deny them something uh, else um, because of, because of their race. Um, that might be done uh, directly um, and blatantly. Might be done subtly by deliberately choosing uh, a set of selection criteria like zip codes or something like that that you knew. We're going to exclude people because of, of race. But if you had something, uh, a selection criteria that was chosen that did not discriminate uh, on its face because of race uh, and was not chosen because of the uh, uh, racially discriminatory effects it would have and that was applied to everybody equally without regard to race, uh, the man on the street would not call that discrimination. Uh, unfortunately, uh, a lot of people think that it is discrimination. Let me just give you a, you know, a quick example, and it's an example that I gave in, in the uh, article that I wrote for, uh, for the Cato um, uh, Supreme Court Review. Uh, suppose that you had a, a state that did not allow prison inmates to vote, okay? And uh, it had that law on the books for a long time, maybe even before uh, African Americans were allowed to vote, And uh, it applied this law to everybody, all prison inmates, you know, regardless of color. There was no discriminatory intent. Um, It it applies to all prison inmates regardless of race. Is that racial discrimination? Well, again, you know, uh, any sane person would say, well, no, that's not racial discrimination. Uh, However, if you use the disparate impact approach, uh, if the prison population uh, has a higher percentage of uh, one racial group than another racial group, then it would be considered discrimination. <clears throat> uh, it's not discrimination. But if you adopt the disparate impact approach to civil rights law enforcement, it is. And as, as I'll discuss uh, in a moment, and as, as, as Ken is also going to discuss, this is uh, has all kinds of bad effects and uh, I think is is unconstitutional as well. Well, turning now to the two Voting Rights Act cases that, that I talk about in, in, in my article. Um, one of them involves Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. The other involves Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. Um, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act applies to all uh, jurisdictions in the United States. Uh, it prohibits them from engaging in racial discrimination in voting, uh, which, is, which is fine. Um, But it also uh, prohibits not only what uh, all of us would agree is racial discrimination, but also prohibits uh, policies that have racially discriminatory results, which is a way of smuggling this disparate impact approach in. Uh, As a result of this results test, uh, the uh, Section 2's principal use today in 2009 is to require racial gerrymandering, to require the segregation of voters by race through racial gerrymandering uh, in order to ensure that there is racial proportionality in uh, elected officials. The question in Bartlett versus Strickland, uh, one of the cases that the Supreme Court decided this term, was whether this uh, application of Section 2 should require racial gerrymandering even in instances where the racially gerrymandered district did not and could not result in uh, a majority of minority voters in a particular district. In other words, what was at issue in Bartlett versus Strickland was whether if you had a, uh, a large enough uh, but less than 50% group of African Americans in a, a district, um, but that they could combine political forces with non-African-Americans, whether that potential kingmaker role could require racial gerrymandering, uh, even in circumstances where uh, they were a relatively, you know, small part of the population. Well, the Supreme Court said no. Um, And and that's a good thing, uh, because as bad as it is to have racial gerrymandering at all, um, requiring racial gerrymandering in any district where there is any appreciable minority population would have increased the amount of racial gerrymandering in the United States ex- exponentially. The other Voting Rights Act case, uh, which got a lot more uh, publicity, uh, was the uh, Namudno uh, versus Holder case. Namudno is, uh, if you're trying to figure out the ethnic uh, or you know national origin of Mr. Namudno. Uh, don't. Uh, it's, it's an acronym for the Northwest Austin Municipal Utility District Number 1. And the uh, it's a very small and relatively new um, district, uh, and it brought this lawsuit to challenge um, the constitutionality of Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. Now, Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, unlike Section 2, does not apply to um, all uh, jurisdictions in the, in the United States. It applies only to certain jurisdictions, particularly but not exclusively in the, in the Deep South. And it requires those districts, before they make any change in any practice or procedure that has anything to do with voting, such as, for instance, moving a voting place from the junior high school to the high school next door, uh, any change like that has to be pre-cleared, by the the federal government. Uh, There are all kinds of federalism uh, concerns raised by this uh, requirement. Uh, It was passed with with good reason because for years uh, a lot of districts, particularly in the the Deep South, had played sort of a cat-and-mouse game with the federal government and had continued to make small changes uh, but deliberate changes to keep African Americans from voting. And in order to keep one step ahead of them, the federal government decided that, well, before we're going to allow any changes by these districts, we're going to require that they be pre-cleared by the Justice Department. Unfortunately, um, now, um, you know, many decades after the uh, Section 5 was, was first enacted, there is no appreciable uh, difference in the amount of racial discrimination in the districts that are covered versus the districts that are not covered. This is something that obviously gave the Supreme Court uh, a lot of heartburn at oral argument. Uh, this was you know, one of the arguments that was made against uh, the constitutionality of Section 5. Uh, in the case, uh, Chief Justice Roberts, and um, he succeeded in getting um, uh, eight justices to, to join him uh, in, in this opinion, um, managed to avoid the constitutional issue by interpreting uh, Section 5 in such a way that the uh, particular uh, district, the Namudno uh, district, could bail out of Section 5 uh, through uh, a different provision of the statute. But in the, in, in the opinion, uh, Chief Justice Roberts made it clear that in a case uh, that, that uh, is brought in the future, uh, there were going to be real problems with upholding the constitutionality of Section 5. Uh, Justice Thomas wrote a separate opinion where he said that he would have reached that question uh, and struck down Section 5. Section 5 also uses the disparate impact approach. Uh, and the principal use of Section 5 in 2009, again, is not to stop what any sane person would view as discrimination, but to impose racial segregation through racial gerrymandering uh, in, the, in the covered districts. Why am I so upset about this, uh, this disparate impact uh, approach? Well, uh, it's not limited to the Voting Rights Act. Uh, and as, uh, as Kim will discuss, it was also the uh, front and center in the Ritchie versus DiStefano uh, decision as well. Nor, it, although those are the, the, the Voting Rights Act and, the, um, uh, and Title VII are the two parts of uh, federal law where you actually have codification of the disparate impact approach, uh, the federal government uh, will undoubtedly, in the uh, Obama administration, try to use this approach in a variety of other areas as well. And, indeed, Attorney General Holder has promised that that is exactly what he's going to do. So we can look forward to um, disparate impact lawsuits in the housing area, uh, in the credit area, uh, in, uh, in let me give you just, just a, you know, a few examples of, of uh, the kinds of lawsuits that you can look forward to. In the Clinton administration... Uh, A pizza delivery company was sued because its policy of not delivering pizza in high crime areas or not allowing pizza delivery people to leave their cars uh, when they uh, delivered uh, pizza in high crime areas was challenged as having a disparate impact on the basis of race because uh, the neighborhoods that uh, this applied to uh, had a disproportionate number of this or that uh, ethnic group in them. Or suppose that you have a bank that has um, lending policies that disproportionately exclude members of this or that racial group. Those will also be subject to disparate impact uh, litigation. And, of course, uh, we already know that it applies in, you know, to firefighters, in policemen, if they are required to pass a, a test showing that they know something about firefighting, or if they have to pass a physical fitness test to show that they can, in fact, you know, drag people from, uh, you know, from burning buildings. If if that kind of a test has a disparate impact on the basis of sex, for instance, uh, you can count on the Justice Department to, to challenge that, too. Well, what is to be done about all this? Um, you know, we can, we can complain about it, and I think that that's an important thing to do uh, because the American people don't like this kind of, of uh, approach to civil rights law. Most people, you know, view this as, as crazy. Um, but I think that it's uh, likely that protests uh, to Congress are going to fall on deaf ears, uh, uh, at least for another uh, year or two. Uh, it's unclear whether the Obama administration is going to be very receptive to pointing out uh, how wrong-headed this approach to civil rights law enforcement is. So in the short term, I think it's very important to litigate, uh, to bring lawsuits that challenge this. Uh, there is a real question, uh, as, as Ken will discuss, about whether this kind of approach is consistent with the equal protection cause of the Constitution, I think in instances where the disparate impact approach is not codified in law, for instance, with respect to housing uh, and with respect to um, uh, public accommodations and with respect to um, uh, federally funded activities, uh, the courts uh, are unlikely to uphold the the disparate impact approach. The Supreme Court obviously has a lot of misgivings about it. But – The judiciary is as good now as it's going to get. And, in fact, the judiciary is going to start getting a lot worse in a hurry. So the time to litigate is now. Thank you very much.
3: Thank you. Um, It is great to be back at Cato. I was here many years ago as an intern. Uh, If uh, I offered to take your jacket when you got here, I was a little confused about the different uh, function uh, today, but it is very good to uh, to be full circle. I am always amazed at the fact of this conference each year and the ability of Cato's Uh, Staff to provide you, when you arrive, a copy of a book which provides academic analyses of cases that came down as recently in some cases as just a a few months ago. I think that's unprecedented in uh, scholarship, in academic publishing. And what it means is that you are receiving not just uh, a particular set of analyses, but really the first... Uh, extended analyses of a, a series of issues that have really, really just uh, just happened. I'm humbled to be with you. Uh, I think my regard for uh, Roger Clegg is reflected in the citations you'll find in, in my article. I'm also humbled by the audience I, I see in front of me. Uh, despite the uh, glare of some lights, I do see Dr. Niskanen, Judge McConnell, Commissioner Gaziano, Commissioner Von many other uh, prominent uh, representatives of uh, uh, government and uh, well-known members of the media uh, and other think tanks. I'm very glad to be here. As Roger Polan was talking about the Constitution and the importance of uh, people uh, really taking, uh, uh, taking charge and playing the role that they have on Constitution Day, uh, I was reminded of um, a, um, a piece by a thinker perhaps a little bit too uh, radical on the libertarian side than some folks uh, uh, might be, Thomas Paine, who was uh, perhaps the first to recommend a Constitution Day. Uh, at any rate, he recommended it as early as 1776, Uh, a day commemorating the Constitution of the United States of America, which I thought was impressive since we did not have either a Constitution or a United States of America at the time. Uh, But he recommended that we establish a charter uh, once we get rid of uh, the former administration, a charter to resemble the Magna Carta, and that we commemorate it each year with a ceremony in which he suggested we, we take this charter that he would like to see and we put a crown on it we put a crown on it to represent the fact that in, uh, in a republic, uh, to the extent we believe in any form of monarchy, it is, it is the law uh, which is king. Uh, and I think in this uh, neo-Romanov age of czars, uh, it's appropriate to, uh, to think of that. Uh, but his recommendation is that at the end of the day, we take the crown off of the charter and smash it up into little pieces uh, just so that people don't get carried away with this, uh, uh, with this idea. At any rate, it is good to be part of this um, uh, day honoring the U.S. Constitution. Roger Clegg helped me out quite a bit in explaining uh, disparate uh, impact and and making easier uh, the job of talking about uh, the firefighter's case. If I may diverge a little bit, as I was writing the article that appears in the Cato Supreme Court review, I took a little bit of time off one evening uh, to tell my daughter, my three-year-old daughter, a uh, story one night.
1: And that's um, why you were late in submitting. That's, <laughs> yes, yes,
3: it, the story got a little bit long, got a little bit long. And I thought that she would want a Disney story, uh, as usual. Uh, but this particular evening, perhaps to... Reflecting insight that she might have on my work, she asked for something different. She pointed to a volume of old Yiddish folktales that we have, not often read, but that she wanted to hear that night. Uh, And so I read to it from her. I opened up and uh, turned to a story called Footprints in the Snow, uh, which is a story about the mythical town of Chelm. Uh, There are lots of – this is a whole genre of stories about Chelm, which is an eastern uh, town that was in legend known for uh, people who were so foolish in everything that they did that they counted only backwards and they put on their shoes uh, before their socks, a town not entirely different from the one in which we speak today. In the town of Chelm, there was a man, he was called the shamus or uh, synagogue uh, attendant who took care of, uh, took care of the, uh, the synagogue in Chelm. And every day for 45 years, he would, he would get the rabbi up in the morning to, uh, uh, to, uh, to, to say the prayers. But on one particular morning, he woke up and to his surprise and joy, the, the whole town of Chelm was covered with a silky white blanket of snow. And he thought to to himself, what a joy, such a a beautiful surrounding. I do not want to mess this up. I can't walk to the rabbi's house creating these footprints. What will I do? He had an idea. And his idea was that he would have his two sons carry him (laughs) to the rabbi's house so that he would make no footprints in the snow. And they did, and they took him to the rabbi's house where, as you might have imagined, he was crestfallen to turn around and to see not just one, but two sets of footprints in the snow. So this is the story that I shared with my three-year-old daughter who I think anticipated that I would want to think or talk about the problems that arise uh, when Congress or the courts try to avoid uh, one set of wrongs uh, by encouraging or requiring uh, another set. Okay, The problem from Helm, as it it were, in this case, uh, the problem is when governments want to avoid uh, what might be covert or unconscious or unintentional discrimination, and they do it by requiring what may turn out in some cases to be actual overt intentional discrimination by others, the problem of, of disparate impact. Uh, this is a problem which is raised in Ricci uh, versus DiStefano, but not entirely resolved there, but it is posed more uh, fully and more squarely than we've seen it before. Many of you are probably familiar with, at least generally, the facts of that case, which I won't uh, overly belabor. You may recall that it was prominent over the summer when uh, Judge uh, Sotomayor uh, was examined over this because she had been one of the appellate panel who had affirmed the decision upholding the decision by New Haven to Uh, decertify or decline to certify the results of promotional examinations taken by firefighters who wanted to be lieutenants or captains in in New Haven. Uh, On the one hand, on the one hand, they were concerned because there were so few white or Hispanic firefighters who had uh, performed uh, successfully uh, that it appeared there would be few few candidates eligible for promotion who were African-American or Hispanic, and that if they did, in fact, certify these results, uh, they would be sued for uh, disparate impact. Uh, under the doctrine that Roger Clegg explained. There may have been other motivations and in fact there was a record of uh, sort of a racial politics going on within that community and of political pressure by the the mayor, but that was one concern. On the other side there was the concern actually raised later in litigation uh, that by refusing to certify that in fact there would be discrimination against the uh, white and perhaps uh, Hispanic firefighters who did score highly but who were prevented as a result of this uh, racial uh, or ethnic consideration from being promoted uh, to the positions uh, to which their uh, examinations would have, um, uh, if not entitled them, m- made likely that they would, uh, they would receive. Um, the Supreme Court, in this case, as in Numudno, decided the case on narrow grounds. Uh, making difficult to see exactly uh, what they would do, uh, when the issue is, is actually decided. And yet, as in Namudno, they essentially hinted rather broadly what their views were. In, in this case, in Ricci, the big case, the big issue that they were hinting at is the question of the conflict between disparate impact and equal protection. In other words, to the extent that disparate impact law sometimes requires race-conscious conduct by government, uh, does that not violate the right of equal protection, which is guaranteed by the, by the 14th Amendment? In the Ricci case, the 5-4 decision by Justice Kennedy uh, strikes down the decision by, uh, by New Haven, but it is based entirely on Title VII. That is to say, it is based entirely on statutory grounds, based on the principle that the Supreme Court will not reach a constitutional issue when it can be decided simply based on a statute. Nevertheless, Justice Kennedy, and also Justice Scalia in his concurrence, made very clear that these issues remained for further discussion. Kennedy emphasized that the court's opinion does not address the constitutionality of the measures taken here in purported compliance with Title VII. As he said, nor did it quote hold the, hold the um, uh, strong basis. The meeting of the strong basis and evidence standard would satisfy the equal protection clause in a future case. In other words, he hinted rather broadly that a future case would likely arise in which a plaintiff would argue that disparate impact violates equal protection. He wouldn't decide it here. He's just flagging it for the future litigation, which Roger Clegg has. Uh, has alluded to well, why would that be? Why would there even be a conflict? Ruth Bader Ginsburg, in her dissent, argues that these two provisions disparate impact, and she was speaking of uh, disparate treatment but it 's in some ways analogous to equal protection for this argument have previously been uh, have previously been in harmony. They work together to prevent discrimination all right. But it was a former law clerk of hers, Richard Primus, who had explained in a law review article that, in fact, the two often conflict. uh, And they do. At first blush, at first blush, disparate impact does not seem to provide an equal protection problem. doesn't seem to raise uh, racial classifications. After all, it doesn't specifically mention any racial or ethnic group. However, however, entities which are Eager to comply with Title VII, are frequently uh, required to classify their employees or uh, other uh, recipients or beneficiaries on racial terms in order to uh, in order to comply. Um, worse, as Justice Kennedy pointed out in Ricci. Uh, employers may use the prospect of disparate impact liability as a pretext to justify their efforts to achieve a particular racial balance in the workforce. In other words, and I think that this is a very much what's illustrated in the, in the firefighter's case, sometimes there will be a mix of motives for actions which have a uh, um, race-conscious element. And to the extent that there is political pressure, as there appeared to be in New Haven, to achieve a particular racial composition of the workforce or of the senior officers within the workforce, a disparate impact provides essentially a cover or pretext for them to, to do it. Um, In a prior case, Justice O'Connor had recognized that the inevitable focus on statistics in disparate impact cases would put undue pressure on uh, employers to adopt inappropriate prophylactic measures. That's one of the things that I think we see here. In addition, there's the question of motives. Uh, What was the motive for Congress in passing or codifying the disparate impact provision? Surely it was in part to root out forms of discrimination which could not be found through other means, right? To the extent that that was their motivation, it is an entirely acceptable and compelling uh, basis for race-conscious action. On the other hand, to the extent that the disparate impact provision does not provide an affirmative defense for good faith conduct, in other words, to the extent that disproportionate racial results demonstrably are an unavoidable result of employer actions which were not racially motivated, employers do not, have, employers do not have a defense. This suggests that Congress had something else in mind beyond merely rooting out discrimination since good faith actions are also encompassed. And what was that? Well, one thing that is also encompassed by the congressional motive, it appears, and the courts have indicated, is what you might call a kind of uh, leveling uh, or equalization to eliminate results which might not be the result of intentional discrimination, but which nevertheless replicate what would have happened had there been discrimination. Now, to the extent that the uh, purpose of Congress was this form of, re- of, of leveling or equalization, then the motivation is a lot less compelling and a lot less likely to meet the requirements uh, of strict scrutiny. With limited time, what I will say is that when the court does revisit this question of what Scalia calls the war between equal protection and disparate impact, they will have to decide first whether disparate impact is really just about rooting out discrimination. And they will likely find that it isn't. And to the extent that it isn't, there is at least a very strong argument to be made that it cannot meet the requirements of strict scrutiny. Now, Congress can fix this problem. One way it can fix the problem Uh, that I've mentioned in the article and and cited work by by Roger Clegg is by establishing a good faith defense. That is to say, to make clear that if uh, racially disparate results emerge from facially neutral policies, notwithstanding the good faith of the employer, then the employer won't be liable. That's common sense, but Congress hasn't done it. It would fix the problem, but Congress won't do it. In this environment, and because Congress won't do it in in this environment, the court will likely need to do something like either narrowing the provision by its interpretation or striking it down, which I think may be the likely result. Striking it down and encouraging Congress to fix it by adding provisions like a good faith uh, defense that would um, that would harmonize disparate impact with different. Uh, treatment, and equal protection. Until they do that, the war between equal protection and disparate impact uh, will continue to rage on, creating legal uncertainty and the sort of policy problems uh, which Roger Clegg described. Thank you. Well,
0: unlike my predecessors on this panel, uh, I have the unenviable task of talking about one of the more technical cases that came before the court this term, not the kind that you read about every day in the newspaper, like uh, discrimination and affirmative action, but federal preemption of state common law remedies. Um, I'm sure that just quickens your mind, oh, boy, I can't wait to hear about this. Um, Yet it is an extraordinarily important issue, and the court has made a mess of it. Uh, from its inception four years ago, uh, the Roberts Court decided uh, a large number of business cases, and none was more important this past term than Wyeth v. Levine, where the court decided six to three that federal law regulating drug warning label uh, didn't protect pharmaceutical giant Wyeth against a $6.7 million failure to warn claim under state common law. Uh, in other words, notwithstanding the Constitution's supremacy clause under which federal law is supposed to uh, trump state law, the court found against preemption, thus further muddying the water in this area of our law. Now, it may seem odd to have uh, an issue like this uh, on a panel dealing largely with rights, but I'm going to argue that at the end of the day, uh, Wyeth is a rights case involving the rights of corporations as well as the rights of individuals to efficacious drugs and drug administration procedures. Before I get to that point, I'm going to have to wade through some pretty dull stuff on preemption. First, however, I want to lay out the facts of the Wyeth case. Then I'll turn to Justice Alito's dissent, joined by Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Scalia, to show how simply and properly the case could and should have been decided. I'll then show critically how Justice Stevens' opinion for the court made a hash of things Turning a simple medical malpractice suit into a frontal assault on the Food and Drug Administration's regulatory regime for drug labeling, as Alito put it in his dissent. Finally, I'll look briefly at Justice Thomas's concurrence in the judgment alone, invoking first principles, but unfortunately not fully or accurately. That will get to the rights issues that are otherwise buried in this decision. Obviously, that's a lot to cover in 15 minutes, so I'll just be touching on matters that I've discussed much more fully in the review that you've got before you. All right, to the facts. Uh, Alito put it succinctly, tragic facts make bad law. In 2000, Diana Levine, a Vermont musician, seeking relief from severe migraine headaches and nausea, uh, went to her local clinic, Uh, For faster relief, the doctor's assistant uh, administered Wyeth's drug Phenergan by the IV push method, after which Levine suffered irreversible gangrene followed by amputation of her right forearm. The injectable form of Phenergan could be administered either intramuscularly or intravenously. An intravenous administration could be performed by either the slow IV drip method or the faster but more risky IV push method, where inadvertent intra-arterial injection would lead to the tragic results that followed here. Those risks were well-known, as were the benefits. In fact, Fennergan's labeling contained both detailed instructions about the procedure and no fewer than six separate warnings about its risks, warnings that had evolved over the years and been approved by the FDA. But the physician's assistant ignored the warnings and pushed a double dose of the drug into the single spot on Levine's arm that is most likely to cause an intra-arterial injection. Not surprisingly, Levine brought and won a negligence action in Vermont State Court against the clinic, her doctor, and the doctor's assistant. But she then sued Wyeth, alleging that the labeling was defective because it failed to instruct clinicians to use the IV drip method of intravenous uh, administration instead of the higher-risk IV push method. The trial uh, court rejected Wyeth's motion for summary judgment, which argued that Levine's failure to warn claims were preempted by federal law. After reviewing FDA's 45-year history of Fennergan regulation, the trial judge instructed the jury that Wyeth's compliance with FDA requirements did not establish that the warnings were adequate. The jury found that Wyeth was negligent, that Fennergen was a defective product as a result of inadequate warnings and instructions, and that no intervening cause had broken the causal connection between the product defects and the plaintiff's injury. It awarded Levine $6.7 million, the Vermont Supreme Court affirmed, with a dissent by its chief justice. It found that the jury verdict did not conflict with FDA's labeling requirements, and that federal labeling requirements create a floor, not a ceiling, for state regulation. Wyeth appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, which granted cert, and then just a few months ago upheld the decision of the Vermont Supreme Court. As Justice Scalia, uh, excuse me, Justice Alita made clear from the start of his dissent, this was not a complicated case. Its tragic facts aside, it was a simple medical malpractice case, The warnings were given. The physician's assistant ignored them. The tragic results followed. But the legal results were equally tragic. As Alito put it, the decision upset the well-settled meaning of the supremacy clause and the court's conflict preemption jurisprudence, holding that a state tort jury, rather than the FDA, is ultimately responsible for regulating warning labels for prescription drugs. How did the majority do that? We turn now to the confused opinion, at least an outline. Without going into the arcane categories of preemption doctrine, Wyeth involved the claim of implicit conflict preemption. That is, the relevant federal statute, the Food and Drug and Cosmetic Act, authorizes the FDA to test drugs for safety and efficacy, but the act's drug labeling provisions don't expressly preempt conflicting state law. To press a preemption claim successfully, therefore, a drug company has to show either that it would be impossible for it to comply with both state and federal law or that state law stands as an obstacle to the accomplishment uh, and full execution of the full purposes and objectives of Congress or of the FDA acting within the scope of its congressionally delegated authority. As we'll see in a moment, those two prongs are more closely connected than the court seemed to appreciate. Writing for the court, Justice Stevens took those two uh, claims in order. Before doing so, however, he identified two factual propositions decided at trial. First, that Levine's injury would not have occurred if Fennergan's label had indicated an adequate warning about the risks of the IV push method uh, of administering the drug. And second, that the critical defect in Fennergan's label was the lack of an adequate warning about the risks of the method. It's hard to know what to make of those, quote, factual propositions. As Alito wrote in dissent, it's unclear how a stronger warning could have helped Levine. After all, the physician's assistant who treated her disregarded at least six separate warnings that are already on Fennergan's labeling, so Levine would be hard-pressed to prove that a seventh would have made any difference. Turning to Wyeth's impossibility argument, Stevens sought to dispute the claim by pointing to FDA changes being affected. Here it gets really technical. Changes being affected regulations that allow companies to strengthen a warning to reflect newly, adequate, uh, newly acquired information prior to receiving FDA approval. Plainly, the implication <laughs> is that Wyeth didn't strengthen its label, to reflect any new information, yet the court was vague at best about whether there was any such information, much less how it was to be assessed, concluding simply that when the risk of gangrene from IV push injection of Fennergan became apparent, just what point in time that was, we don't know, Wyeth had a duty to provide a warning that adequately described the risk. Wyeth responded, of course, that it did provide warnings that adequately described the risk, but that the physician's assistant ignored them. Given that failure, the the dissent raised the crucial question whether yet another warning would have made any difference at all. In the end, the court's conclusion is simply a prescription for evermore failure to warn rulings because it flows not from any independent risk assessment based on costs and benefits, but simply from the occurrence of the untoward incident. In sum, the court's analysis is circular. If there's an incident, the warning ipso facto will be deemed inadequate. That brings us to the second prong of Wyeth's implicit conflict preemption argument, that recognizing a state law duty to modify Fennergan's label creates an unacceptable obstacle to the accomplishment and execution of Congress's purposes. Unfortunately, the court seems to read purposes narrowly to mean simply Congress's preemptive purposes. Thus, it takes as its main guiding principle that the historic police powers of the states were not to be superseded by the Federal Act unless that was the clear and manifest purpose of Congress, the so-called presumption against preemption. The court never really wrestles with Congress's substantive purposes in enacting the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act and establishing the FDA in the first place. Yet absent any express preemption provision, Understanding those substantive purposes is absolutely crucial to understanding whether and how preemption operates in the FDCA context. In brief, Congress's clear purpose was to ensure that drugs and the procedures for administering them are both safe and effective. But safe and effective are sometimes themselves competing objectives. In fact, that precisely is the case here the IV drip method of administering Phenergan is safer but less effective than the IV push method. That's why on her second visit to the clinic that day, Levine and her physician decided to pursue the less safe but more effective IV push method. Yet the court is oblivious to this trade-off. It's as if the court were trying to eliminate all risk. Thus, deprived of the issues required for a full and proper implied preemption analysis, issues found in Congress's substantive purposes and objectives, the court narrowed its focus, looking only to such peripheral, ev- peripheral evidence as Congress's silence or the FDA's evolving views. The court never engaged the substance of the matter. In particular, it never took notice of the two sides of this issue, the costs and the benefits, like the jury, It saw only costs, which it attributed to an inadequate warning. And even then, it did not see all of the costs. It was oblivious, for example, to the costs of overwarning, which discourages and may even eliminate the use of efficacious drugs. The FDA's mission is twofold, to ensure the safety of drugs but to ensure their availability as well. Perhaps it's noteworthy that in his 6,000-word opinion for the court, not once did Justice Stevens use the word constitution or any of its cognates. Justice Thomas made up for that, and so we turn finally to his concurrence in the judgment, which nonetheless blasted the court uh, for its implicit endorsement of far-reaching implied preemption doctrines, especially its purposes and objectives jurisprudence. By contrast, Thomas would ground preemption doctrine in first principles, in federalism, and the Constitution's provisions for dual sovereignty, whereas the court, he argues, routinely invalidates state laws based on perceived conflicts with broad federal policy objectives, legislative history, or generalized notions of congressional purposes that are not embodied within the text of federal law. Thus, Thomas takes a strong textualist approach to the issues before the court. While I commend Thomas for his resort to first principles so rare among justices, my complaint, which I'll simply summarize, is that he gets them wrong. He starts correctly with the theory set forth in Federalist 51 that dual sovereignty was meant to provide a dual security to the rights of the people, invokes Federalist 45's doctrine of enumerated powers, and then adds in the supremacy clause to conclude that there are thus two key structural limitations to the Constitution that ensure that the federal government does not amass too much power at the expense of the states, the doctrine of enumerated and thus limited federal powers and the complex sets of procedures that Congress and the president must follow to enact laws of the United States, in particular, the bicameral and presentment clause requirements. Thus, preemptive effect can be given only to those federal laws, he says, that flow from Congress's enumerated powers and those federal standards and policies that are set forth in or necessarily follow from the statutory text that was produced through the constitutionally required bicameral and presentment procedures. But he concludes... Congressional and agency musings do not satisfy the Article I, Section 7 requirements for enactment of federal law and therefore do not preempt state law under the Supremacy Clause. This is textualism writ large, indeed, with a vengeance. The problem is that even with express preemption, courts often have to go behind the text to adjudicate claims properly. AEI's Michael Grievig gives a perfect example of that. Because Congress cannot possibly foresee all state stratagems, he writes, it cannot clearly preempt them. For example, the clearest federal preemption provision of all prohibits states from administering a law or regulation related to fuel economy standards. Congress's proposed greenhouse gas standards do not simply relate to fuel economy, they are fuel economy standards, Grievous says. Even so, federal courts have upheld them against preemption challenges because California describes them as emission standards instead. Well, if that's a problem with express preemption, it's a problem a fortiori with implicit preemption. But the Constitution's uh, first principles allow for, indeed, require the kind of judicial interpretation Thomas criticizes, since many of its provisions would be useless without it, including the textually underdetermined Supremacy Clause. Thus, a richer understanding of the judicial role begins with the text, but it does not end there. Indeed, here it begins with the very purpose and objective of dual sovereignty in the language that Thomas himself cites, to provide a double security to the rights of the people. That means that a judge must come to grips with a theory of rights that stands behind the Constitution and the constitutional mechanisms for securing those rights. In particular, our rights cannot be fully articulated without drawing lines in such areas as risk, as in the case at hand. One way to do that, to reduce risk, To a right respecting level is to require those who cause risk to give public notice of it. That is part of what state police power does. But in an uncertain domain such as risk analysis, one can easily imagine 50 different standards of risk which would make commerce in such areas as drug labeling inefficient at least. Enter, thus, the Commerce Clause, which was written precisely to address the problem of regulatory balkanization. Obviously, I'm summarizing here issues that are spelled out far more uh, detailed in the review. And it's under that clause that Congress enacted the FDCA. Thus, the act was meant, among other things, to address the need for a uniform standard based on the FDA's risk analysis so that drug manufacturers would know what the rules were for labeling their various products, Once that public line is drawn, the parties then know their various rights and obligations. Thus, when one factors in the true purposes and objectives of the Commerce Clause, under which so much federal regulation is enacted, and adds the Supremacy Clause as well, a richer conception of dual sovereignty emerges, protecting the rights of the people against both federal and state power. But if the court treats the FDA-determined warning as a floor on which states may add further warnings, then that renders Congress's responsibility under the Commerce Clause and the agency's function under the statute all but pointless. Moreover, by rendering the federal check on state power pointless, the court compromises the purposes and objectives of dual sovereignty to provide a double security to the rights of the people, in this case the rights of manufacturers and the rights of users to have access to efficacious products and procedures. In effect, and in fact, the court creates an unfounded right in users at the expense of the manufacturer's genuine right. For having been warned of the risk, the user here, now informed, has a right to pursue the risky procedure and enjoy the benefits that flow from it. But if the untoward outcome warned against materializes, then the user has yet a second right at the expense of the manufacturer to be made whole. It's a risk-free scenario for the user. None of that is to say that the FDA regulation has been flawless, of course. The agency has been far too risk-averse, if anything, keeping efficacious drugs off the market for too long and denying access to potentially life-saving drugs when individuals would be only too willing to assume the risk. Allowing state tort law to regulate labeling would only exacerbate that problem, of course. But the question here is whether, absent an express preemption provision, FDA-labeling regulations should be read as implicitly preempting state common law judgments. Given Congress's substantive purposes and objectives in enacting the FDCA in the first place, the answer is yes. Preemption problem in some is prevalent today, of course, because regulations, federal, state, and local, are ubiquitous. The expansion of the commerce power beyond its original purpose is the main source of that problem, even if the power has a legitimate use, as here. But adding yet more conflicting regulations at the state and local level is no answer to that problem. After its decision in Wyeth V. Levine, however, it's the answer the court has given us, and so we must now try to litigate and plan under that regime, and it's going to be a difficult task, to put it
1: mildly. Thank you. We'll now move to uh, questions and answers. Um, I'll ask that you raise your hand, wait for the microphone, uh, stand up, and uh, tell us where you're, who you are and where you're from, and, of course, actually ask a question. Um, uh, that, that last presentation made me think that uh, Roger must be working on a screenplay of sorts, so maybe next summer we can look for the blockbuster movie uh, Textualism with a Vengeance. Um Okay.
2: Yeah, let me, uh, uh, if I could make just a sure. quick observation here, that uh, somebody who in the audience who who dozed off during my presentation, which you know, has been known to happen, uh, and woke up during Rogers, might conclude that disparate impact lawsuits uh, result not only in racial quotas but also in infection, gangrene, and possibly death. Um, I'm, I'm not going to dispute that. Um, but uh, actually, I, I do want to, um, you know, drive home the point that the, um, the problem with the disparate impact approach uh, is that it does uh, have two likely results. Uh, if you challenge a, a selection device uh, simply because it leads to politically incorrect uh, racial and ethnic results, uh, if you make somebody, you know, potentially liable for, for using such a selection device, um, they're likely to do one of two things. One is to get rid of it, uh, even though it may be a perfectly legitimate uh, and, and good uh, practice, like, you know, being careful when you deliver pizza in a high crime area or requiring firefighters to know something about firefighting or requiring people who get loans to have good credit histories. Um, but the other thing that 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 happens is that if the practice is um, uh, important enough to the to the defendant, uh, they will keep the practice, but they will overlay a, a system of surreptitious racial and ethnic quotas. in other words um, they'll tell people you know they'll 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 tell the um, uh, the people in the organization well look you know we're we're not going to uh, stop uh, requiring uh, good credit histories for loans. We're not going to stop requiring firefighters to know something about uh, firefighting. Um, but in order to avoid these, these ridiculous lawsuits, uh, we're going to make sure that we get our numbers right. And as a result, you end up with racial and ethnic quotas, exactly the kind of discrimination that the civil rights laws are supposed to stop so it's not that, um, you know, the, the people who oppose the disparate impact approach like uh, discrimination. We don't. Uh, our point is that the disparate impact approach leads to discrimination.
1: Anyone else on the
0: p- uh, Well, I would uh, just pick up on a point that Roger made just at the beginning of these last remarks, namely that one of the results you'll get uh, from bad law in this area is that employers will no longer have efficacious selection procedures so that they can hire the kinds of people that are most useful for the uh, work that they have to do. Uh, The same applies in what I've just talked about, too. One of the results you're going to get from bad law in this area is that uh, the administrative procedures for this drug which are efficacious in certain uh, circumstances will simply no longer be made available. They will be outlawed, and you will have uh, no. I mean, it, when Ms. Levine went in the second time, she would have had only the slow drip method and couldn't get the fast relief she needed, uh, which would have been available had the, uh, had the uh, assistant or administered the drug correctly. So, bad law leads to elimination of good results that are otherwise available to people.
1: If I can follow up with a question, take the moderator's prerogative. Um, this war between disparate impact and and equal protection, uh, which uh, Scalia, in his concurrence in uh, in Ricci, notes, um, will be resolved on or have to be resolved on some evil day in the court. So I'd like to ask uh, Ken and Roger, um, what kind of case will that be? Can you sketch out a a likely hypothetical of 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 when that evil day arrives. What are what are the underlying facts, and and what kind of uh, specific issues will the court have to resolve?
2: Well, it's I guess easiest to hypothesize in the Voting Rights Act area. Uh, of course, that was not uh, that was not the Ritchie case, but um, uh, there is a, a a a disparate impact issue um, as I've discussed with Section Two and Section Five, and so. One way that this issue could get to the Supreme Court would be uh, in another challenge to the constitutionality of, of Section Two uh, or Section Five, where the jurisdiction uh, that's being sued uh, under Section Two or Section Five, or a jurisdiction that you know proactively you know brings a lawsuit uh, to you know declare uh, one or the other provision unconstitutional, uh, points out that. The um, the disparate impact provisions in the Voting Rights Act are are ultra vires. That the 15th Amendment prohibits only disparate treatment, as the court has said, um, and therefore Congress has you know exceeded its authority, and indeed um, uh, has exceeded it in a way that requires the kind of discrimination that the 15th Amendment is designed to uh, to to stop. Um, uh, Another way that it could come up would be if, um, well, uh, 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 this has actually come up. Um, There's an executive order that uh, President Bush signed and unfortunately, um, excuse me, uh, President Clinton signed, President Bush left in place and which is still in place now, that requires recipients of federal funding to um, make their programs available in foreign languages. And the authority, supposedly, that that is cited for this is uh, Title VI of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which prohibits discrimination on the basis of um, race, national origin, uh, or color. And so the government's theory is that, well, um, not being able to speak English uh, uh, has uh, a correlation with uh, national origin, uh, you know, it has a disparate in- and, and, and so therefore not uh, making lang- not making programs available in foreign languages has a disparate impact on the basis of national origin, and so therefore, you know, presto, uh, Title VI is violated. Um, it's a ridiculous construction, and um, uh, Pacific Legal Foundation uh, has brought you know brought a lawsuit uh, on behalf of some doctors. Uh, who were required uh, in a federally funded program to uh, tr- translate all kinds of, you know, services in, into foreign languages uh, on, on the basis that this, uh, this executive order and the regulations uh, went further than, than uh, you know, pr- uh, were ultra-vires under Title VI. Um, uh, unfortunately, um, the, the Ninth Circuit threw that out on, on uh, justiciability grounds. Um,
3: Ken, uh, employment... I mean, it could be a wide range of cases. I think the Ricci case opens the door for uh, litigants to challenge um, uh, disparate impact in any of the realms in which it's raised. And we know that the uh, Obama administration is planning to use it aggressively. So it could be in voting. It could be employment. It could be in education. It could be the use of some sort of standardized uh, uh, exam in an educational context, conceivably housing Um, because these cases are going to be, under Obama, much more frequent, uh, potentially there's an enormous number of defendants who could accept the invitation that I
1: think Ricci extends. Back there. And again, um, wait for the microphone, identify yourself. Actually, behind Todd. Steve Hursting, Center for Competitive
2: Politics. This is for Roger Pilon. Roger, I look forward to reading the article, but I can't wait to ask you this. Could you repeat or hit me over the head with how the court knew that the federal labeling scheme was a ceiling and should have preempted
1: state schemes? Thank
0: you. Uh, well, I rejected the whole distinction between ceiling and floor. That's how uh, I went about it uh, because um, once the line is drawn where that defines the label, in this case, uh, the warnings and how they should be um, worded, and so on and so forth. Then the die is is set. Um, now, how does the court um, determine? Your question again was: How does the? T- how does the court know, or what's your theory on how they do things? Were preempted or often have been preempted? They don't have to. They all they have to know is what the language of the label was um... they don't know whether they don't have to know whether it was rightly drawn i hope that answers your question I mean, it's, it the court is not the 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 body that draws the line it's the court that when once the line is drawn by the administrative agency then simply determines whether um... um not whether it's adequate but whether it is um... it, it just what it is and that i mean as Alito put it, um, the uh, preemption follows simply by operation of the Supremacy Clause.
1: Todd?
4: Sorry to try to jump the gun there. Um, I I wanted to... Preempt,
1: as it were. Oh, yeah,
4: (laughs) preempt, as it were. Todd Todd Gatzian, and I'm both... uh, uh, at Heritage Foundation and a Commission on Civil Rights Commission. By the way, Ken, I don't think outside the commission anyone's ever called me commissioner. <laughs> it sort of sounds good, but I need to stop. But anyway, um, I, I want to uh, draw, ask any of the panelists really, one uh, possible factor that may prevent the court from really g- resolving and grappling the disparate impact is their, their tendency really to give modest decisions. And I'll give you... Um, uh, you know, one or two examples to, to um, you know, in the Section 5 case, of course, Justice Thomas uh, was was critical that the remedy even that the Mud District seemed to accept was not uh, a, a real remedy. Uh, we've seen it in um, it, Ritchie could have been more muscular. And by the way, maybe as a matter of court politics, answer this question anyway, this was very wise and very, very smart. But another way that this disparate impact uh, issue um, may not come to really terms with the constitutional issue, is that the Supreme Court, it, the statutes itself, um, don't necessarily require disparate impact. As we know, the government in many areas has only implied it. Uh, uh, the court, using its uh, uh, constitutional doubt doctrine, when it's finally forced to raise the issue, sometimes says the statute doesn't necessarily cover this. We and the Commission just finished our year study, uh, and our forthcoming report is coming out, on uh, credit. Uh, standards and the Supreme Court has never read the just another area uh, that has never uh, endorsed the uh, disparate impact theory that any lending criteria any lending criteria you all can think of or just about income level has a disparate impact and and uh, some scholars of course have drawn. Um, have asked whether that contributed the, – the kind of lowering of credit standards contributed to the, the crisis. But if that ever does go up to the Supreme Court, mightn't they just construe the statute not to require them? It, maybe that's just as good, but, but um, uh, I just want you all to comment on the court's uh, either uh, prudent or imprudent modesty here.
2: Well, you know, the, the modesty can actually is a two headed sword, and we actually saw that in uh, the Bartlett case and the uh, Namudno case. And the modesty in the Bartlett case uh, resulted in a construction of Section two that avoided uh, some of the quota problems, uh, and the modesty in uh, the Namudno case. Uh, that uh, they avoided striking down section Five, and I think the same thing can happen in, in, in other areas too, for instance, um, if somebody challenged um, the uh, the titles, the uh, regulations that have been promulgated under Title six that that use a, a disparate impact approach, um, the Supreme Court could say that well. Uh, we're going to hold these uh, regulations to be uh, invalid as a statutory matter, because we're not. Go- you know, we have said before that Title VI prohibits only disparate treatment. Um, it, it doesn't admit to a disparate impact approach, and therefore, as a statutory matter, um, you know, these regulations are are ultra vires. Or um, the Supreme Court could say that well, we're not going to interpret the Fair Housing Act. Uh, or the, 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 uh, the Fair Credit Act or, or some other statute to allow a disparate impact cause of action because were we to do so, uh, it would run into constitutional problems. So the, the modesty of the court doesn't – and by the way, you know, in, in Alexander versus Sandoval, the Supreme Court uh, explicitly pointed out and reserved the question, Uh, Of whether these regulations that have been promulgated under Title VI might not indeed be invalid, since Title VI itself uh, allows only a disparate uh, disparate treatment, um, prohibits only disparate treatment, and and does not prohibit you know disparate impact. Uh, It's uh, pointedly reserved the question of whether the Fair Housing Act, for instance, admits to a disparate impact approach. So, uh, you know, you're right that this modesty could result in an outcome like in Namudno where the, the court avoids striking down uh, a statute on disparate impact grounds, but it might result in regulations being uh, held invalid or in statutes being construed so that they don't allow uh, a disparate impact approach, or at least uh, uh, the, the, a disparate impact approach is uh, allowed only in very narrow circumstances. That could happen too, but of course, by that time, libertarians will have taken over Congress and it won't be uh, uh,
3: an issue. Yeah, I mean, there, there certainly are some statutes that explicitly require disparate impact and some that don't, but for which implementing regulations have. I think that the credit issue is somewhat uh, complicated, and you've clearly focused on it a little bit more recently than, than I have. Uh, my recollection is that Title Eight is one example of a statute that does not explicitly require uh, a disparate impact before which implementing regulations do. On the other hand, there are probably other statutes, including at least one statute specifically uh, discussing the uh, secondary market, uh, which do... Uh, explicitly implement what you could call disparate impact with respect to uh, underwriting standards and and related issues. Um, I actually think that Ricci is as good an example as you could cite for the notion that the court dodges the issue whenever it can, in part because I personally think that Justice Ginsburg has a point when she argues that uh, new Haven might have a substantial basis in evidence for the notion that it would have been liable for uh, for a disparate impact. I think that if the Supreme Court had sent the case back uh, f- uh, for uh, the lower courts to decide the, um, the matter under the, the new standard, the substantial basis in evidence, there would have been at least a pretty good argument that since New Haven could have avoided the impact while still achieving its 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 business goals uh, simply by changing the weight that it gave to the oral versus the written part of the exam, or by using assessments and so on and so forth, it, it might have passed under it, it might have succeeded, in which case the court would have had to decide the constitutional question. So I think that Ricci is, a, is an example, perhaps supporting your notion that when the court can avoid this issue, it does. Um, but will it continue to do so repeatedly? Um, My hope and my expectation is that the method that we're seeing in both in the Mudno and in Ricci is the court taking an incremental step, highlighting the issue first, and then dealing with it later. So I would expect that at some point the court will uh, have the courage to reach the issue. But I suppose that's, that's an open question. The question is whether the Roberts, Roberts Court's incrementalism is a way of slowly reaching the issue or of avoiding it altogether.
2: And, of course, who knows what the court is going to look like yes. by the time that issue gets there. And that comes back to the, the point I raised before, that, you know, the time to litigate is now. Could, could I raise, uh, if sure. we have got time... Um, uh, Roger Pilon, um perhaps in a, a Freudian slip, uh, you know, characterized um, uh, the the cases that, that Ken and I, uh, Ken Marcus and I, were talking about as as affirmative action cases. And of course, um, they weren't directly affirmative action cases, but uh, that is kind of the the uh, you know the elephant in the room uh, in in this area um, because. Uh, you know, to what extent does, you know, Ritchie, for instance, um, put constraints on employers that uh, want to take race and ethnicity into account in their, um, you know, hiring and promotion policies. I mean, that would be certainly, you know, one way to characterize what New Haven did. Uh, And I think that the Ritchie case does shed some light on that. Um, you know, clearly there are five members of the court that are very skeptical about any weight being given to race, ethnicity or sex, uh, you know, in any kind of hiring or promotion decision. Uh, and I think that the uh, court's affirmative action cases in, uh, in uh, Johnson versus Transportation Agency uh, and in uh, Weber versus Steelworkers, need to be looked at again in light of what uh, Justice Kennedy wrote in in Ritchie, and I, I think that it's it's fair to say now that a majority of the court would allow um, uh, disparate treatment uh, in in the affirmative action context uh, only if there is a strong basis in evidence that if disparate treatment were not undertaken, that the employer would be liable uh, for failing to remedy its own discriminatory policies. And uh, I'd like to see a lawsuit brought that, uh, that, that tried to, to um, you know, get a ruling on, you know, that, you know, to clarify that point as well, because that would significantly, I think, uh, narrow the amount of, you know, politically correct discrimination that we, that we see now in the workforce.
5: Hi, I'm Stuart Taylor. I write for National Journal. Question for Ken. Suppose the court gets a Title VII disparate impact case in which five of them uh, are ready to decide that uh, a a good faith defense uh, or its functional equivalent is necessary to uh, save its constitutionality. I think you indicated that that might require them to strike it down and suggest that Congress adopt a good faith defense. couldn't the squishiness of the terms job-related and business necessity, which they, the Congress has not defined as far as I know, and the kind of reasoning that Justice Kennedy used in, in, divide, in, in applying a strong basis and evidence test allow the court to create the functional equivalent of a good-faith defense by interpretation, uh, constitutional avoidance, let's say, um, as opposed to uh, striking the statute down and asking Congress to clean things up?
3: Possibly. Um, I think Scalia certainly wouldn't follow that, that line of argument, and I'll, I'll bet Thomas wouldn't either. So the question is whether an, another opinion, say, by Kennedy joined by uh, Roberts and Alito would go that way. And, and I don't know that I have any basis for saying whether they would or wouldn't. That would be, um, that would be a useful way of avoidance um, if they were but, – but I think it would, it would not be an entirely honest approach to the case, and so it would depend on whether the court were willing to sacrifice candor uh, for a result that would be more politically expedient, and uh, I, I guess I would just say maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I
2: mean, it's, what you described is a lot like what happened in Bartlett versus Strickland, where, you know, you had um, uh, Thomas and Scalia saying that, well, you know, we we don't buy into any of this. Uh, you know, we, we, don't, we don't think that, that Section 2, um, uh, Uh, admits to any kind of of racial gerrymandering requirement. Uh, And then you had uh, uh, Kennedy and uh, Alito and Roberts saying that, well, you know, we're not going to go that far, but we're certainly going to interpret the statute to uh, avoid uh, and limit the extent to which, you know, quotas are required. And so, you know, you put the two of them together, you've got five, and, you know, that could happen. um, uh, And and if, you know, the, the, the practical result is that, okay, uh, employers now have a good faith defense. Um, that would, uh, I think that's possible.
1: And with that, I think we'll close the panel. Uh, after this, we're going to go upstairs uh, for lunch in the Winter Garden, be back here sharp at 1. So let's thank the panelists, and we'll adjourn.